Well, it's been quite a journey. We have now finished, or after this episode, we'll have finished season two. We have done 16 main episodes this year, which of course I'd invite you to listen to or re-listen to. And then we had our interview series. We had four reaction episodes. And of course, there's uh, our first six episodes from season one. And uh, that ties into what we're, we're doing today. And you may recall that for season one, we did an episode on what happened to Britney Spears about 10 years ago. People said she had a breakdown. Uh, she had taken an umbrella and chased paparazzi. She shaved her head, checked into a hospital, lost custody of her kids. It was around this time Spears was put under a conservatorship, which is a, a rare form of essentially a guardianship uh, of sorts, usually used to protect the elderly or the mentally disabled. And it was overseen by her father and meant that she couldn't make personal or financial decisions. I met, I recall reading a, an article that said anytime she made a phone call, she'd have to get permission from her, her dad or, or a lawyer. And that conservatorship, some form of it, we don't really know, continues to this day. So I, I suggest checking out that episode that we did. It was from season one. It was called Without a Voice before listening to this. If not, you'll still be able to follow because the last few years, and despite the conservatorship, Britney has found tremendous success once again, performing in Las Vegas since 2013. She's done about 250 performances. Uh, the residency has made about $140 million. So it's been this huge success. And then last fall in October of 2018, Britney Spears revealed another Las Vegas residency at the MGM Park Theater. And this was going to be, you know, the biggest one yet. And then in January of this year, Britney said she would be on an indefinite work hiatus. She said she had decided to go on the break after her father had fallen ill. And, you know, I'm not going to go into all of the details for reasons we'll get into, but she then opted to seek help to take care of her own mental health. And it's just fair to say speculation as to what that meant uh, ran wild. It's online and countless news reports. But what also surfaced is the news that Spears had asked for this conservatorship that's been going on for over 10 years to finally end. Uh, but it hasn't. And a free Britney campaign has started demanding that the conservatorship ends, many believing that she's lost her own freedom. So in today's interview, I speak with Sadie Doyle. She's the incredible uh, writer and author of Trainwreck, The Women We Love to Hate, Mock and Fear and Why, a book on how we build up and uh, tear down rebellious women. You can get her new book, which I found uh, incredibly entertaining well-written and just insightful. Uh, her new book is on Amazon, Dead Blondes and Bad Mothers, Monstrosity, Patriarchy, and the Fear of Female Power. She sure knows how to come up with a good title. Uh, today's a follow-up story on Britney Spears. As you can imagine, there's a great deal of nuance to try and understand what really happened. Oh, I like how I did that there. Enjoy the interview. Well, Sadie, first off, thank you for taking the time. I appreciate it. I really appreciate it. Well, thank you for having me. And I guess maybe let's just start with, as a reminder, and I know we talked about this, uh, you know, more than, God, almost two years ago, a year and change ago. Um, but as a reminder to people who've forgotten, how would you describe and, and kind of walk us through how Britney Spears was treated 
some 11, I think about 11 years now ago when I want to say, I want to find, I don't want to say like what many people say, which is a breakdown or, or that sort of word, but instead maybe something like struggling with mental health issues. Right. She did seem to be struggling with mental health issues and it was a moment in her life when both the ordinary and the extraordinary pressures on her were such that almost anyone would have had a breakdown, if that's what you want to call it. This was happening in the middle of a divorce. Um, She had been one of the most famous pop stars in the world since her late teens, and it had reached the point that she was being followed around the clock. There was an entire fleet of guys in Los Angeles whose job it was to sit in their cars and follow Britney Spears. Um, She had reached that point in the cycle where there was already a tremendous amount of eagerness for her to fall down in public. Um, There was a lot of scandalized and angry coverage of her for gaining weight after having two children, which that's what women's bodies tend to do. Um, They had crowded on her to the point that she slipped while carrying a baby and she was blamed for that. She began to sort of intentionally lash out at the presence of the paparazzi in her life. A lot of the photos that we remember as Britney Spears being crazy were actually photos of her engaging violently with a guy who was following her. The photo of her hitting a car with an umbrella was because that guy had followed her to a custody dispute and had seen her argue with her ex-husband and had not gone away when she had asked him to go away. She'd asked him to leave her alone because she was having a hard day. The time that she went into a hair salon and shaved her head Um, she told the people there, I did this because of you. She told the paparazzi, I did it because of you. Um, But the more she lashed out against being watched and followed, the more incentive there was for her to be watched and followed until eventually she did end up in the hospital. You know, the combination of the stress of her personal life and the stress of just constantly being scrutinized seems to have catalyzed, you know, a crisis. She needed to be in the hospital for a while to sort of get herself together. And and how would you say that uh, have retreated celebrities, have restarted to treat them differently since then? I think that there is a younger generation of people who you know, at the time were maybe just very young fans of Britney Spears who were, you know, feeling the leave Britney alone moment. And they're now in media, you know, it's, it's understood among people a few years younger than myself that Britney is iconic and you just want to leave her alone. You just want her to be happy. I think that what changed it ultimately was not necessarily Britney Spears, but the fact that other people that we treated the same way we treated Britney Spears, Um, Amy Winehouse, for example, or Whitney Houston, Mm. they actually wound up dying, you know, um, that we had sort of treated Amy Winehouse and Whitney Houston's addictions as jokes, as jolly good fun. People 
were still laughing when Amy Winehouse gave a performance on stage when she was too obviously, you know, rattled and sick and damaged to continue and had just curled up in fetal position on stage. That was a joke for a while. But then those women died and we realized that what we do when we make fun of people who are in very clear mental health crises or very clear spiraling addictions, what we're doing is making fun of someone who is very likely in their death process. Um, and I think that that put a real chilling effect on the sort of constant train wreck coverage that have really dominated a ton of 2000s pop culture media. So interesting. And, and you write about this brilliantly in, in train wreck, the women we love to hate, mock and fear and why. Uh, and so uh, this question almost, I'd encourage listeners to, to read the book, uh, train wreck and, uh, but, and, and it's really throughout the book. So this might be kind of tough to answer, but could you talk a little bit, Sadie, about the historical perspective in terms of uh, it's, this isn't, Britney Spears wasn't, to say the least, the first woman who got um, mocked and, and hated and, uh, in the way that she did. And um, just a little bit of that historical perspective that you do such a nice job of, of providing in your, in your book and your writing. Absolutely, she was not the first woman to do this. And that's not only a feminist point, wherein any woman who challenges gender rules and norms in a public setting tends to be mocked really viciously and shamed really viciously. Any woman who is too public often tends to be shamed really viciously because that's one of the conditions of femininity in a patriarchy, right? Women belong to the private sphere. They belong at home. They belong in relationships with men or they belong with their children. They don't belong, you know, in positions of power and authority. But even more so than that, I think especially with the way we treated Britney Spears and Amy Winehouse and Courtney Love and however many other women we've done this to, um, you can look back to the fact that female bodies have always been really spectacularized and have been a really compelling popular spectacle when we can attach that to the idea of madness. Um, hysteria, this um, very feminine disease that did not exist, was really popularized um, by a physician named Charcot. And the way he did that was by taking pictures of teenage mental, you know, mental hospital patients in various states of undress. Or doing live performances where he would hypnotize a hysteric to go out and kiss a member of the audience. There were paintings of this, and they're very sexy paintings, you know. Like um, mm. there's a painting called "A Demonstration of the Salpetriere," where one of his hysterics is just swooning in the arms of a man, and their dress is open all the way down the front, and it looks like a romance novel cover. The idea that mental health is a public spectacle or a laughing stock has always been with us. We are not that far away from times when you could pay to tour a mental hospital as entertainment. You would pay a penny and go through Bedlam and people loved it. They thought it was hilarious. Um, we've sort of escaped that and we might think of that as brutal or exploitative now, but the way we treat women who behave in ways that we call quote unquote crazy is really a direct continuation of that age-old practice of just displaying mentally ill women as titillating spectacles. 
I forget the exact line, but I remember in your book something that stuck with me and I, I use frequently is, uh, is uh, you know, when an artist does something uh, maybe outlandish, let's say, the male, the male artist is called brilliant and the f- female artist is, is called, um, you know, uh, crazy or whatever the adjective is. Yeah, we all understand that genius and madness are connected when the genius is male. I think is what that line. <laughs> right. Um, that, I, I only laugh because yeah. it's so true. Right. Now, Sadie, have you been keeping up to date on the this latest Britney Spears conservatorship uh, issue? I have, and I've been glad. I suppose that it's more subdued than it was last time around. When you say that, do you think that we should even be talking about this? Uh, what do you What do you make of the conservatorship? Is it Is it something that we should be paying attention to in the event that it is a dangerous um, a, a, using that that law in a in a dangerous fashion? I am really ambivalent about this because that conservatorship does not quite line up, right? That conservatorship is something that you would apply typically to somebody who has Alzheimer's disease, for example, an elder who honestly cannot care for themselves or ensure their own basic survival needs. Or you would apply it to someone who is, you know, very severely developmentally disabled. Britney Spears, you know, has been sort of faux-diagnosed in a lot of different ways. Um, We don't know what she has outside of rumors um, because doctors aren't allowed to tell you that. And if she doesn't want to tell us that, that's her right. But she does not appear to be incapacitated. You know, it is not normal for somebody who has severe Alzheimer's disease to hold down a popular residency in Las Vegas or be a judge on American Idol. She seems to be substantially healthier than the terms of that conservatorship, which strips away a ton of her legal rights, a ton of her control over her own decisions. She can't even technically decide, for example, whether to get married. Her father for a while was able to control whether or not she could use a phone. Um, that's, that simply doesn't line up with how productive and seemingly happy she's been over the past few years. She doesn't seem like a person who needs someone to tell her how to brush her teeth. Um, However, that justified concern over whether she is being exploited or whether she is being infantilized beyond the limits of what is right and fair can also be used as a form of concern trolling. You know, um, the second she went back to that mental hospital or canceled her residency, You know, it's not unusual for someone with a chronic mental health condition like, you know, let's say bipolar disorder, since people say that a lot. Somebody with bipolar disorder may need to go into a hospital at certain points throughout their life. And it's not a big deal. It just means that, you know, sometimes some days are better than others. You need to get your medication checked. You need a few days of rest. For that to spiral out into conspiracy theories into anonymous sources claiming that her father is keeping her locked up in mental hospitals for it to become a thing where I'm seeing, you know, headlines cross my dashboard. Will Britney Spears ever perform again? We've now taken 
that our our understanding of her or our seeming commitment to move forward and not make a spectacle out of mental illness anymore into a, a justification for more spectacle. You know, at the end of the day, people with mental illness don't need to be treated like children. They, most of them, the vast majority of them do not need to be placed under lock and key, but they also need to live in a world where it's fine for them to go to the hospital when they need help without that turning into another source of stress and drama and confusion and pain in their lives. Yeah, that's so well put. Do you, what do you think of, and this is where maybe being ambivalent comes, comes into, feeling ambivalent comes into, into play. What, what do you make of the free uh, Britney sort of hashtag and campaign? What I think, and I think this is completely reasonable, is that Britney Spears has become an avatar for a lot of people. She has become a place for them to put their emotions about their own mental health, about their own survival. And what that means is that even with the best of intentions, and I'm as guilty about this, you know, as anyone else, because I wrote a book about her. I project my stuff onto Brittany all the time. But people want for Brittany what they would want for themselves. And that cathexis, that process of putting part of yourself into the image of a pop star you love, can lead you to do things, quote unquote, for them that are actually not what they have asked you to do or would want you to do. It is admittedly sometimes hard to know what Britney Spears wants you to do because she's under the terms of a conservatorship that kind of limits her ability to communicate. And she is, you know, purposefully, I think, after decades of being watched and after being watched became so stressful that it put her in the hospital, she has distanced herself quite a bit from the public. Britney Spears has become more opaque from being someone that we knew every single thing about her. She's become someone we know very little about. And I think that's partially on purpose. You know, what's interesting is you said, uh, and correct me if I'm wrong, I think you just said you are guilty of it as well. Did that, did that play a role in how you wrote your second book in terms of whether or not to include Britney's story or can you, I kind of wanted to get in. Uh, I'm curious a little bit more about about that. You're you're feeling guilty while also being so aware, more than arguably anyone, of 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 uh, the history of of this and and treating women in such a in such a way and projecting our own stuff onto onto these these people. Yeah, um, I think my second book is. I had intended not to write about anyone who was alive. In my second book, um, it's called Dead Blondes and Bad Mothers, and it is on sex and violence and patriarchy. Basically, it's about reproductive violence and sexual violence um, and how we sort of brutalize and terrorize girls to make their lives fit very particular predetermined roles of wives and mothers and all of that. Um, I had hoped to focus on people who were either not real or not alive Um, so I included a lot of stories, uh, from the horror genre that I thought were interesting myths. And I included a lot of true crime where the victims were already dead. Mm. It didn't totally work. There are people in that book who are still alive. And I think that when we use living people to tell our own stories, 
to work out our own issues. Everyone does it, and it's important to know that that's how celebrity culture works. And that is, God willing, how a functioning celebrity works with their audience. Someone like Beyonce knows that she is an avatar for a lot of black women's self-love. You know, someone like Taylor Swift knows that she's become an avatar for, you know, I'm nerdy and no one liked me in high school and I had this bad breakup. Mm. You know, it, she's, she's become a, a vehicle through which a lot of people work out their feelings of rejection. There's nothing wrong with that. At their best, celebrities engage in that dialogue with their audience. They become embodiments of things we're working through and we sort of have a relationship with them. But that does not mean that when someone is, you know, unable to define their terms of their relationship with the public, that they still owe us, you know, our pound of flesh. Mm. When somebody is in a place, and I think Britney Spears has been in this place more than once. I think Amy Winehouse has been in this place and was in that place when she died. When someone is in a process that is as brutal and as intimate as their mental health crisis or their addiction or their death, we can keep demanding and demanding and demanding things of them without any pause to think, you know, if I take everything this person has, they won't be around anymore. Mm. Um, Our sense of entitlement to them can become so consuming. We feel like they're part of us and they're not, they're, they're real people. And sometimes real people need to go to the hospital and it does not need to be a story until they decide to tell us what that story was in their own life. Damn, you're articulate on this, on this topic, if not other topics too, I assume. Do you Sadie, my last question is, do you, do you see anyone in the pop culture sphere right now that seems endangered, it seems in danger of being uh, exploited in similar ways to Britney or, or different, but equally poorly? I mean, I think that right now um, there have been certainly people who've had vulnerable moments. Amanda Bynes springs to mind. Mm that people treated her meltdown as really funny or contemptible until it became clear that she had schizophrenia. Right now, I think the rules have changed to to the point that celebrities almost understand that negotiating that space between being personable and accessible and being utterly sort of exposed and laid bare is part of their job. I don't see anyone right now who seems to me to be in crisis, but people are people and human fragility is a constant. There will be more people who are in crisis. We know that and we just have to decide who we want to be the next time it happens. Hmm. You know, you just made me think of one last question here is, has the social media, I would think it allows celebrities to control their narrative a bit more. And in that sense, is it a little bit more in their control as to what they want the world to know about them or to think of them? I think that it does allow celebrities a more hands-on role in creating their own narrative. You know, they can put themselves out in their own words, in their own 
you know, preferred light. Someone like Cardi B in the middle of a fight with Nicki Minaj can just show us the screen of her phone and show us which tweets Nicki Minaj has liked. And that's a strange level of intimacy. Mm. Um, I think it can also be really bad when someone is going off the rails a little bit for them to be able to broadcast everything they're thinking. Mm. Azalea Banks is not someone that I really want to jump in and defend because I think she said things about queer people that are inexcusable. Mm. But she's also talked about how when she got rich, she would be in the studio with a lot of cocaine and her hand on her phone. And it was real easy for her to just say what she was thinking. Mm. And that has led us to the current state of Azalea Banks, which is not great. Um, I think that, you know, it's, it's a weapon. It's double-edged. It's a privilege to be able to write your own narrative, to be able to tell the world who you are in your own words, to choose your own story. Social media has given us that, but it has also given us access. It has given us the ability to all be the guys in Britney's car, you know? We're all following Britney's fears around now, and that gaze can be loving or it can be predatory, and it can turn in an instant. Well, Sadie, thank you so much for, for coming on. This was a incredibly quick 23 minutes. Um, so, as always, I, I really do appreciate your time. Absolutely. I really, really love talking to you. Thank you so much for thinking of me. Thank you for listening to this week's episode of What Really Happened, produced by Dwayne The Rock Johnson, Danny Garcia, Brian Gewertz, Seven Bucks Productions, and Cadence 13. My name is Andrew Jenks. You can follow me on Twitter and Instagram at Andrew Jenks. And if you have a moment, I'd really appreciate it if you go to the Apple Podcasts page and leave a kind review, uh, a rating. It really does go a long way. Thanks for listening.